Hello everyone, and welcome to Chapter Tactics. This is your 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warhammer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I am your host, Mr. Petey Pob, and with me I have my two co-hosts, Sean, this guy, and Skyri from Scardcast. I am back and better than ever! Now I have a quick story about today's episode. See, originally the topic was going to be about the how to start a podcast, how to start, you know, your own Discord channel, streaming, all that stuff in 40k. However, this weekend was my daughter's birthday, and the in-laws came over. You know, we had a small COVID-sized party for my little girl, and quickly realized on me, realized to me that in parties you have like zoning, you have zones of influence. You know, you have the grandma. <laughs> But when she comes in, everyone has to come in and give her a hug and a kiss. You know, the abuelita. You have the kids who who take up their own space. You have the parents. And then in this case, in this, you know, politically charged climate, there are factions within the family. And I really wanted to do an episode about zoning and zone control and controlling your space. Because I felt like I had a lack of it this weekend. And I want to talk about that specifically. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about zoning. Zones of influence and controlling space in a Warhammer 40k tournament, and how you can use those strategies not only in the game to improve your game, but also how to improve other games as well too, where spatial awareness and movement is very important. So things like like a war-based games, League of Legends, things like that too. So chess, uh, it doesn't just pertain to Warhammer 40k. But we're going to talk about those concepts. Before we do that, remember Frontline Gaming just released their new mat conversion kits. If you bought your 6x4 FLG mat. You want to convert it down to a 44 by 60 size. Head on over to FrontlineGaming.org for a small investment. You can have it both ways. That is my phone. That's actually literally an in-law calling me right now after I told them all that I'm recording a podcast. So this is, this is the zones of influence. This is me not you controlling my zone them. of influence. <laughs> it no is problem. literally my mom. She heard me talking about her and her family. Anyways. Get those conversion kits over for $20. You can convert your 6x4 to a 44x60 without having to cut it up. That's a great deal. Also, those lucky patrons, you have one more week to win a $100 FLG gift card. And we're actually going to be giving away $100 shopping sprees for, for FLG for all the patrons um, until I think of, until something, until a big release from GW or, or whatever. Uh, every month I have a hard time deciding what I'm going to give to the patrons. Uh, so I'm just going to do that. That's going to be the default. And then when something cool comes out, if I get a limited edition item or something crazy, I'll give that away. So if you want to win $100 shopping through FLG for terrain, GW products, Pathfinder model, Pathfinder accessories, and so much more, you just all have to do is subscribe. Go to patreon.com slash chapter tactics and just sub $5 a month. And then you, that's how you enter a chance to win. And then finally, I want to talk about couple things so first off forge world have awoken from their slumber much like the silent king although i would say the forge world at this point are more like the silent jesters um considering how how much rules writing they've done um seriously though uh forge I think world has it was more they were kicked awake <laughs> maybe yeah yeah you'd Not say that like the slumber, they were just like you know nudged awake by a foot yeah, they were just chilling on some outer rim world, you know, just hibernating, waiting waiting to be woken up for a new edition. Here they are. Uh, I 
I don't I I I think it's not too bold of a claim for me to say the only Forge World update we're going to get for ninth edition. Hopefully that is not the case, but it might be. We never know. So we got Forge World updates. What do you both think about uh, the Forge World stuff? Doesn't I mean obviously we don't have the full rules, so we'll talk about that when the podcast goes on. Um, when that comes on. Um, but what do you think about kind of like the names, the things that were omitted? Any surprises? Well, personally, I'm excited uh, by all things Eldar, Dark Eldar. I'm sad that it seems that the Corsairs are moving to legendary status. Yeah, yeah. it looks official now. So I'm a little bit saddened by that, since I always thought the Corsairs were like some of the coolest, like lore-wise and whatnot. However, the the removal of the relic keyword and the Hellforge key, like well, not I don't know if it's keyword specifically, but a removal from the actual data sheets from those words um, is interesting to say the least. Yeah, it relic was a little bit of a um, a relic rule. Uh, to to phrase it awkwardly, but it it didn't really serve a lot of purpose. It was one of those things that Forge World really liked to do because they thought it made narrative sense, and its actual effect on the game was virtually nothing. Uh, and it was usually like a paragraph of text for including a single unit of servitors in your army. Yeah, that that was basically it. Was an extra little tax that never really stopped competitive players from taking the Forge World units that they wanted or spamming the Forge World units that they wanted. Um so I agree yeah. with you. I think I'm I'm kinda glad it's gone. Uh I'm real I'm also really surprised by how much they legended from the Space Marine size. I guess I'm not too surprised. Obviously a lot of those character models didn't had never seen models ever. Um a lot of the rules for those characters never seen models ever. And so it is kind of cool to see Space Marines taken down a peg from the Forge World perspective, because they did lose a ton. They lost like five Land Raiders. Um, As a Drakari player that lost all of my Codex characters, I don't feel sorry for Space Marines <laughs> at all. Yeah, those those poor Space Marines are down to only like 40 or 50 units in the book. It must be really tough for them. Yeah, that that, that is a that's that is like, another fair that's, point. I, I think that's fewer HQ units than are in the Codex. Even that's that's tragic. <laughs> that's fair. that's very fair. Um, I, I, and I'm not and I'm not. Um, I agree with both of you. Uh, I, I'm I'm glad to see a lot of the space ring options taken away, uh, especially because you couldn't get a lot of those models anyways. Yeah. Um, and so it, across the board, it looked like every faction lost one or two models. Uh, here or there, pretty much all of the characters, basically everything that didn't have a model before is gone, um, as we kind of expected, as kind of was GW's MO. Uh, and other than that, well, I guess we'll have to see where we're, where, where they're going to be updated. If you take into account how they handled 8th edition and uh, upon release, uh, you're probably going to be seeing a lot of standardization across the board. You might even see some weird things in like Tower or, uh, you know, Tyranids or, you know, whatever changes to their core weapons that might that might not have been, you know, applicable in the FAQ. I don't know. I don't know how they're going to handle it. Because, obviously, because, you know, Chaos Space Marines, they said, are getting, like, an extra wound, right? And they changed all the Melta weapons uh, for Space Marines. So they might do the same for the Tau, for the Forge World equivalents. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I'm I'm looking forward to taking a glimpse into sort of like the development's minds into some of the Xenos codexes 
So, you know, especially if any of the new books or any of the new units, like from the Drukari or like the heart, like Eldar or whatever, if they get some special rules or stuff that doesn't seem to make much sense for the current codex, it might give us a glimpse into what they might be thinking to say mm-hmm. add in for rules to them in their codex coming soon, right? Yeah. So I, I like <laughs> <Soon>. that. <laughs> soon. <laughs> Uh yeah, the Necrons the Necrons kind of showed. I, I do like now, Sean. I, you haven't been on the podcast in a while. Uh, wh- what were your thoughts on what they did, with the direction they took the Necrons and the Necron Codex? I think it's good overall. Um, it's always tough to be one of the first books out for an edition. So you know whether we'll still think the Necrons are great in six months is debatable. Um, but the book seems to be fairly well written overall and seems to function more or less the way they want it to. Um, I know everyone is just foaming at the mouth furious about how new resurrection protocols are the worst rule that's ever been written and how dare they, but it's fine. It it does mostly what it wants. Yeah, um, I'm pretty much in alignment with you. I think that GW took a really measured and balanced approach to the Necron Codex, uh, mm-hmm. and if they had done that with Space Marines, um, yeah, we would have the problem. You know, yeah, that that is the problem, right? Is the Necron Codex might very well be a really good internally balanced codex. And it looks like it. It looks like they really tried hard not to let you break it. Uh, they re- you know really tried hard to give you cool options, powerful stuff, um, fluffy things. Like it's actually a really good codex from a game design perspective. However, it will forever be. Uh, compared to the Space Marine Codex, because they came out at the yeah. same time, and Space Marines have been dominant for so long, and they were, yeah. you know, the first one of the first factions to get a Codex um, when they were one of the last factions to get a Codex in Eighth Edition. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's it's... actually the part that worries me the most. Is that you know not only did Space Marines get basically the last eighth edition codex they also get the first ninth edition codex Mm -hmm. it looks like they are making all of the same mistakes they made in eighth edition over in ninth edition Mm -hmm. at least in terms of space marines um because you know now we're gonna see six supplements in a row with additional space marine rules and they are clearly more powerful than the other codices that have been released it's honestly not super encouraging uh because it's like oh boy now we have another what year of space marine being dominant before gw decides to actually fix things uh and then they'll bring them down a little bit but then there'll still be one build that they missed so we'll have to deal with another three months of that um and it's just yeah it's it's really frustrating to see them get the best book and also no one else gets a book at all yeah yeah i agree 100 percent um so we'll see i hope i i predicted unfortunately at the end of eighth edition i predicted that space marines were going to be good well into ninth edition um and so hopefully that prediction doesn't come true we'll wait and see so um let's go ahead and move on to the second thing i wanted to talk about and that was a new YouTube channel, or not new YouTube channel, new YouTube video that came out, uh, put up by Magikarp Used Fly. So if you're unfamiliar with them, Magikarp Used Fly, the Carp Crew, uh, they put out a, they just put out a new series, uh, four guys starting warmer of forty thousand uh, dollars. They basically all dropped thousands of dollars on new armies in 40k and just dove right into it and started recording and documenting everything. It was a really good first episode. I really enjoyed it. 
In the second episode, they talked more about getting ready for competitive play. Uh, Reese and myself were both interviewed for the episode, and they also got other uh, interviewed other people from around the community as well uh, who knew about competitive 40k. It's a great episode. Um, I highly recommend it if you like competitive 40k, if you're kind of excited for what the future looks like for competitive 40k in terms of from a streaming and media coverage perspective. Should be a lot of fun. It's also very entertaining. Uh, and they also did something that I've been wanting to do for a while, which is a paint your model, paint a model for you challenge, which is basically one of two of them played a game and the winner got to paint a model for the loser's army that they had to use in their next tournament. Um, and I was uh, very entertained. They, he painted a glorious pink and blue Tau fire warrior sergeant with a white ghost face. It was, it was wonderful. That's hilarious. It's really funny. So check them out. That's Magikarp Used Fly on YouTube. Uh, give them a sub. Give them a like. Uh, welcome them to the world of Warmer 40k. And if you see any of the Carp crew in a 40k tournament, smash them to the ground. I mean, welcome them warmly and lovingly. All right. On to the main topic, boys. On to the main topic. Zones of Influence. So uh, I'm going to drop a couple of anecdotal analogies about uh, different games other than 40k, and I'm going to bring them back in. The, the first one is uh, from a game called little game called League of Legends. There's a lot about League of Legends that, that, that kind of is similar to 40k in terms of from, you know, spacing and, and kind of resource management. Well, there's no resource management. I guess there's points, but um, more specifically, uh, spacing and uh, movement management in League of Legends, it's very important. You're also coordinating with four other people. Uh, but one thing that comes up very frequently in League of Legends in particular is threats and zones of influence from champion to champions. Uh, you see in League of Legends, uh, you have skills and abilities and attacks that have limited ranges that can only target a certain distance. And therefore, there are some champions that have range advantages over other champions. Now, when you get into zones of influence, you there are more, are more efficient ways to attack and to influence your enemies' champions uh, depending on how you overlap zones of influence. So the first thing I want to talk about with a zone of influence is overlapping zones of influences and how they help you in 40k games. So in League of Legends, there's uh, a famous you know move called a gank, right? It's, it's something that every uh, jungler needs to know. And for those of you who don't play League of Legends, essentially the jungler is a, a champion on your team that roams around the map trying to create opportunities, exerting their zone of influence wherever they need the team needs them to be. So the jungler uh, doesn't stay in a lane. So there are three lanes in League of Legends and there are champions in each lane. And they kind of stay there. They kind of do their role. They do their job. But the jungle moves around specifically to put his zone of influence on other champions or on other objectives. And so when the jungler goes to your lane, uh, immediately you're you're fighting another champion one-on-one. And then when the jungler appears, all of a sudden it's a two-on-one. However, if the jungler's zone of influence doesn't reach you at the same time, or doesn't reach your enemy at the same time you do, you're attacking inefficiently. So what might end up happening is the jungler might take a bad path, come up behind your opponent, your opponent turns around, kills your jungler, because they're in a one-on-one situation, because your jungler engaged outside of your zone of influence. Same thing happens in Warmer 40k. Uh, If you have a Nightbringer Necron Satan, 
and he's you know he's barreling down a Tau gun line, and then you deep strike your captain, and you or not your captain, this isn't Necrons and Space Marines. <laughs> it's quite you deep an strike your com- catacomb command barge, you know, Lord. Uh, you deep strike him down, you charge him into that Tau gun line, but then your your Satan isn't able to charge in there as well. You're and you're you're it's it's an inefficient attack for you, uh, because you know your catacomb command sergeant will charge in there. Um, your satan nightbringer can't do anything, and they can't attack together. It's not a concerted attack. Uh, now that's not always the case. Sometimes you want the catacomb command catacomb command barge to charge in there first for Overwatch or whatever reasons. But it's important to understand uh, units' zone of influence in a game of 40k. And I'm, I know I'm talking a lot, so I'll let Scar and Sean kind of expand on this. Um, I, I talked to to death, but uh, in in Scar and Sean. In games that you play, what are some other examples of zones of influence that you like to look at when you're when you're moving around the board and kind of mapping out your plan? Uh, something that you said that's very important is making sure that you attack at like the right time. And you know, it comes to like it comes to mind when talking about um, a concept called defeat in detail, which is basically making sure to try and split your army your opponent's army up and then hit them in a concentrated manner so for example using speed and maneuverability to like have say say you're playing a 1500 point game and you split your army into three 500 point chunks say across your deployment zone in this case in your example you put two different characters in two different parts of the table right even though they're deployed separately your general idea or your general plan is to get those two characters to sort of congregate into a specific like area right at the same time to have the maximum influence on the game right so it's risky in that your opponent can sort of pick apart your little 500 point units but if they sort of like spread out to sort of like meet the threat and then all of a sudden you can combine two of those 500 point elements into a 1000 point element or two characters into one sort of like mega character and hit an opponent's like mm-hmm. army hard hard in that sort of zone all of a sudden you're in a position like in a very good position right yeah 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 and i and and napoleon used to do that all the time he'd split up 50,000 men in three different towns when he was facing an army that was 100,000 men hoping that the opposing army would split up into you know 3 30 3,000 men armies, and then he'd like force march two of the towns next to one and then have 50,000 versus 30,000 right so it's like yeah. a it's sort of like a military sort of tactic where it work it only works really well if you are very fast maneuverable and you sort of time it perfectly or it can be a very bad day if you don't plan it properly yeah and and to even break it down to a micro level too uh spears spears are one of the more innovative and powerful tools introduced into medieval combat and history and that's because multiple spears are able to attack you and create different threat vectors that you own, that you need to defend, right? So if you're a one dude standing with a shield and you've got five spears bearing down on you, you can't defend all of them. However, if each of those spearmen were lined up, you know, in a single file line, which is silly to think about, 
uh, and you you had to just deal with one at a time, it'd be a lot easier because you know you deal with one spear, you you know where it's going to be. But if you're dealing with five spears, each of those spears' tips is a zone of influence that you have to worry about. Now you might lose you know a foot, or you might get stabbed in the shoulder, or whatever. Uh, and so that's that's also another way you can use zones of influence is to threat overload as well. Mm-hmm. All right, Sean, do you have any examples? Uh, I think Scarry's point about uh, speed is very critical because, mm-hmm. like, the zone you can influence is going to be limited by your movement as well as the range of whatever you're using to influence. So, you know, obviously something with a 36-inch gun has a, a much larger zone of influence than something that needs to get into melee. But at the end of the day, like, speed is still going to be the critical factor because you're going to need to draw a line of sight or whatnot to be able to influence. You know, you can't influence a zone that you can't affect. Uh, so your speed is going to be paramount in that, and that's one of the reasons that units with very high movement values and also abilities that allow them to ignore terrain or other models are so incredibly valuable uh, because they allow you to exert influence over a much larger area of the battlefield. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. Uh, one way... So it's kind of tricky to to kind of figure out what a unit's zone of influence is. Generally, it's at one point does this unit start to maximize its firepower or its offense uh, or it's, you know, whatever force multiplication or whatever, at what distance does it start to maximize that? So for like, for instance, for a unit with rapid fire range, even though a zone of influence for a tactical squad is technically, you know, 30 inches, which is six plus 24, it, it most players might even consider it to be 18 inches, right? six plus rapid fire distance or 12 or if you're standing still just 24 inches um because of the mm. the astartes bolter no. drill yeah if you're a space marine <laughs> yeah if, if you're a space marine <laughs> uh so it, it is important to kind of manage a unit's zone of influences and be aware of what a unit you know is capable of and what a unit is most efficient um and sometimes it's maybe it's more efficient to move your tactical marines up and and not rapid fire with them just so that they can exert their zone of influence on a unit that wouldn't normally have the have that offensive output to worry about um another thing i like to do is i like to imagine each unit on the battlefield that i own as having like a color pie like a like a almost transparent red color and the more pies I put on layered, the darker the red goes. And yeah. then I start looking for those specific dark areas where I can influence the most. That's why I like taking units like Whirlwinds who have a large zone of influence. Because they essentially they can add their firepower wherever I need it to, to, to kill a unit or to break a shell. Yeah, the, the earlier point about sort of defeat in detail is actually very important um, because... You know, the the more units you have able to affect a single area, the more control you can exert over that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as lethal as this game is, um, if you can concentrate, you know, three or four strong units in a single area, you can just, you can basically clear anything that gets in there. Uh, because there's not many units that can really live up to a sustained assault in 9th edition. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, 100%. So now I want to talk about something that that I'm actually kind of weak about, and that's the idea of 
controlling space. Um, it's actually, it's really not my forte. I, every time I play a game of 40k, I'm I'm really good at kind of assessing the space that my units can influence, but I'm really bad at at using that influence to control where my opponent goes or uh, controlling space. Like I, I tend to give up more space than I need to and be aggressive, and that usually loses me the game, right? So I'll move a tactical marine too squat far a squad too far without looking at my opponent's zones of influences. Uh, and this kind of space control, I think, is really important. Kind of sets the best players apart. Like if you look like uh, if you look at Twitch streams of uh, Sean Naden play, you know, at the top eight of the LVO, he's he's a master at controlling the space around and kind of just winning through through clever positioning and uh, board control. Mm-hmm. So Sean and Sky, help me out here. What are some tips that you can give old PD Pop and his list his listeners uh, about specifically board control and space control uh, that maybe you use in your armies in your lists? Well, I'll tell you about something that everyone can use, and it goes a little like this: Everyone can pre-measure. It's mm-hmm. something you can do. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair yeah yeah Touché. so honestly honestly that is probably if you want to uh get used to the like zones of influence um and like its effect on the table pre-measure honestly it's yeah. probably one of the most powerful tools that you have access to as a 40k player it's yeah. incredibly powerful it's something that you couldn't you you, you weren't able to do before and it's something that all of a sudden became accessible in recent editions and having that sort of knowledge that informational knowledge that's like from the like from you know like the the perspective of like you know an almighty zeus from the top of the table that has all this information you know, it's incredibly useful when you're trying to like avoid a character's charge or you know, you know one of the one of the things that really opened my eyes to zones of influence and how powerful controlling zones of influence could be was my first ever bout at the at the WTC, like the the World Team Championship, the ETC when I went for the first time. And my opponents, because I was running like my Talos at the time, and I was having a lot of fun with my Talos and my Grotesques, and my opponents would pre-measure, and they'd go, so you move 8 inches, and you can charge 12 with your Talos. So they'd measure a 20-inch line from my Talos, and they put this cone of dice, or this like semicircle of dice at 20 inches from my Talos, and make most of their decisions based on how far my Talos could physically charge to give me zero opportunity to have my Talos create any sort of advantage in the game. And it's taking the time to think about stuff like that and then to act upon it that really is what sets people apart. Because you know that things have a charge distance and you know that they can like charge you and do damage and stuff like that. It's what are you willing to do with that information? Right, Mm -hmm. and how are you willing to sort of prepare yourself to make sure that you can take that strength away from your opponent? Yeah, one of the things that's really important to remember as part of that, and 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 uh, 
Scarry kind of pointed out there is that in 40k, the way things work, zones of ab- of influence are very binary. You either can do something or you can't. There's not like a drop off in efficiency in most cases, with you know sort of the exception of uh, rapid fire and a small handful of other things. But you know if you're inside something's charge range, it can charge you. If you aren't, it can't. Um, so that that single inch of difference can make the difference between your unit being potentially dead or just completely invulnerable. Uh, and so, like, respecting those and using those either offensively to sort of control where your opponent can go or defensively um, to say, like, oh, I just, I don't want you to be able to use this unit at all uh, is a very powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah, that that is very strong. Now, I do have a question for both of you, because I do agree with you, Skari, with the first point you made. However, if I pre-measure the, if I pre-measure to a point that I need to be, and I know my, my, let's say, for instance, my opponent has a Tau gun line. And uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, old Tau gun lines, 36 inches, that was that was the death point. That was you measured it thirty six inches, maybe forty two if they had mobile units. Thirty six inches was absolutely when you needed to be wary of Tau shooting because most of their powerful shooting was at thirty six inches. So, what do you do when your opponent puts their overlaps their zones of influences over key objectives that you? that you need to get on, right? So they're obviously, they're doing a great job. They're zoning you properly. They're putting all this firepower on this objective and saying, hey, if you come here, I will kill you. And you know that. And so they're doing a proper job of zoning you. How that, how do you beat that? Um, I think there's two broad ways you can kind of approach that. Um, the The first way and kind of the easiest way is to ask yourself, is this objective actually key? Um, you know, if this is like the objective in the center of the battlefield, you're like, okay, we each got two, and then there's one in the center, so the center one's going to be key. And he puts all his guns to focus on that center objective. Take the other two objectives in his deployment zone. There, there are limits to where you people are able to send their, their zones of influence. Uh, and very often focusing heavily on one of them leaves the others weaker. So what you'll you'll often see players like Sean Naden do is strike at opponents where they have a much weaker zone. So, you know, if there's this deep red circle where it's like, okay, every gun in your army is pointed at this objective, just don't go there. Uh, you can often win the game without doing that. And especially against a gun line, you may not even need to get onto their home objectives. If you can just say, like, all right, you know, we're gonna we're both gonna sit here and neither of us can get on the on the center objective, all you have to do is eke out a couple points ahead of them if they can never get that center. It's like, okay, we're tying two to two every turn. But I'm five ahead of you on secondaries. What are you going to do about that? And suddenly they have to play a, a different game. It's like they realize, like, oh, I stopped you from doing it, but I didn't do it myself. Uh, you you make a great point, Pablo. 
Um, however, I think when it comes to zones of influence and the way that zones of influence impact the game, you also have to take into account sort of like the addition, right? So like, of course, what you're describing is something that happens, but that was definitely something that happened a lot more in sort of like the, like in, in sort of, uh, in, in like eighth edition in a lot of the times, yes. right? So in this edition, you know, I find folks definitely overlap and, and that's a great way to do it. Like if you have say, okay, my hive guard are gonna sit behind this L and because they're behind this L, they can reach three of these objectives. So no matter which objective you go to, right? Um, no matter which objective you go to, they, um, I'm gonna be able to shoot you, right? And then I'm going to have like my exocrine uh, that then overlaps that can or has line of sight and can overlap these objectives over here, right? So all of a sudden you're like, okay, so if I go into this objective, I have to deal with an exocrine shooting at me and hive guard shooting at me, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of the times in ninth edition, it's you can't. It's not really like you can avoid, you know, the the objectives because you will mm -hmm. lose the game. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you will lose the game if you don't score points. So at that point, as a general, you sort of have to exert your own, your own zones of influence, but it can be something like a movement zone of influence or overload objectives with numbers of units. So if your opponent has two units that can shoot, right, put four units on an objective, right, and use something like a dedicated mm -hmm. transport. So then they have to sort of like crack open a transport and then shoot the unit inside. And that's sort of like two separate units that they have to use for that, right? And then have a unit inside and then a character. So then they have to kill the unit and or make it smaller to then get to the character. So then what you're doing is you're layering the approach to sort of soften the blow of them overlapping the objective with a, like, with like a heightened threat overload, if that makes sense. So what you do yeah. is you use the information of what is giving you those overlapping zones of influence and you use that pre-measuring to understand what, like how many of those circles of influence are impacting certain objectives and then you make an educated decision on how to approach the mission objectives. And, you know, as Sean was uh, speaking, was saying, you know, a lot of the times the best, the best sort of like defense is a good attack, right? Like if your opponent has a whole bunch of uh, you know units and he's sort of pressuring you onto the like off objectives and whatnot, a lot of times you can just sort of like rush his home objective and sort of put him off balance, right? Because he'll have all the overlapping zones of influence on his home objective, but he might have not been considering you getting so aggressive and you just like keeping at arm's length, right? So it's like it's it just comes to that play that that sort of like gameplay in and of the time but the key is know how many spheres and what zones of influence are impacting the objectives at that time okay yeah that, that actually helps out a lot uh, and one thing i did notice about ninth edition was it is it's a very different game than eighth edition and it feels a lot more chess like right uh in ninth edition mm -hmm. You move, you take an objective, you take space, your opponent moves, takes your piece, takes that same objective, and you kind of trade back and forth, uh, kind of like uh, 
uh, just a quick series in chess where you trade a bunch of pieces, maybe you think a little bit intermittently, but it's mostly just trading, trading, trading until you get to the mid-game or the end game. Uh, and that's yeah. kind of how Ninth Edition works right now. Now, if you're familiar with chess, you, you would have heard the saying, but for those of you who are unfamiliar, there is an old adage in chess in that uh, in, at the beginning of a chess game, everyone plays like a grandmaster. In the middle of the chess game... You, everyone plays like an adept or an expert and at the late game of a chess game novices play like novices and grandmasters play like grandmasters and what they mean by that is in chess at the start of the game you are limited by the the choices that you can make you can't make as many choices so there's less zones of influences to manage your queen can't move your bishops can't move your rooks can't move your pawns can only move a set distance there's only so many zones of influences to manage However, as you progress towards the late game and you start unlocking pieces, your bishops can move, you know, X amount of spaces. Your queen can move, you know, hundreds and hundreds, affect the board in hundreds and hundreds of positions. And you have to start to manage a lot more zones of influences in a game of chess. Sometimes so much so that you get potentially thousands of potential outcomes uh, and scenarios out of just, you know, one board state. Yes. Same thing in more 40k. And especially in ninth edition, you you know, the difference between taking an objective and standing in the middle of it, standing on the edge of it, standing on your opponent's side of it, standing just off of it, you know, standing far away from it. it they're all different and they're all huge depending on your army. Uh, and sometimes they can make the difference between winning and losing. I've literally seen games of ninth edition lost because the uh, person stood on an objective too far back and was shot off of it. And then the opponent just jumped right onto it and took it. Or or was or able didn't to put more put units someone on. in range of a heroic intervention, or yes. you know, and what you say makes one hundred percent sense, and it's one of the reasons why, when I'm teaching someone how to play the game, or I'm coaching someone, or even where do you just coach those people, Scary? Uh, on the art of war. <laughs> so I'm one of the coaches for the art of war. So if you ever wanted forty k coaching, um, yeah, you can go to art of war forty k dot com and we have you can pick from me or nick or siegler or john lennon or old man brad like we we have a great crack team of people who like teach people how to get better at the game and do clinics and a whole bunch of stuff that we do every week and one of the things that you know i try and encourage is play the game from start to finish you know i you know, I I cannot ca I cannot count, or I've lost count of the amount of times I have played a game and won it because at the end of the game I only had like three or four models left, and I have been in that situation before. So I yeah. know how to use three or four models to win a game, whereas a lot of people play three turns, and if it's not looking good, they re-rack. Right, which is a great like way to sort of fire through three turns, like go through your deployment, go through your like initial game gambit where you're like just moving quickly and trying to like get a position on the board, that sort of thing, right? However, it doesn't really give you the tools that you need for when you are in that like top table situation. You have a terrible turn one, uh, you know, your turn two looks pretty bad, and you have like a quarter of your army left, like, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to complain and say the dice were shitty? Or are you going to put your head down and find out what situations you can get yourself out of? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, Sean, have you played uh, when you've played in your games in Ninth Edition? Do you kind of feel like that's the way Ninth Edition is played? Uh, and then, what are your kind of thoughts on that? I think it's definitely a thing. Like the you don't you just don't have as many models left towards the end of the game. So yeah, each of the their individual things matters a lot more. I think that's one of the reasons that reserves are so critical. Is that ability to bring a unit in on like turn three when a lot of the armies are depleted. The longer the game goes on, the more influence each individual model has on the game because there are fewer models in total. So the the value of a unit changes over the course of a game. And like really late in the game, on you know, like bottom of five or whatever a single model can have a huge influence, whereas, you know, you you probably don't care about that single model at the top of turn one. But... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say that, like, there's value to both, uh, you know, playing out a full game every time and also, like, re-racking to sort of practice those early turns. Um, I've, I've done both ways. There's, because you, you kind of have to make decisions about how you allocate your time. Yeah. It, it, I, I think both ways are viable. Um, I, you know, the, I, I've always thought that the best way to get out and learn is to go to events and tournaments. Um, but that, you know, that's just not always, you know, especially not right now possible. Yeah. Um, the, the final thing I want to talk about is the idea of ninth edition and, the MSU style of ninth edition. So you're dealing with in previous editions with like shooting editions, you dealt with very specific kinds of zones of influences, um, especially, you know, against a, an army like Tau. It's an army like Tau. It, it's a very static, you kind of know where the zone of influence is. You can kind of play around that. The Tau player just have to move slowly and kind of control it. However, the, the style that we're kind of seeing now is a very kind of in your face MSU style. Uh, where you have to juggle multiple zones of influences across the entire board and kind of fight for every square inch. And things like Crypto Thralls, which are 40-point models, are, are like absolute houses because they can exert their influence over other small, equally lower-pointed cost units. So w what are some tips that you guys have for people listening um, who have a hard time managing all those zones of influences? Specifically. Uh, you can go ahead. I think, I think uh, Scarry's point earlier about thinking about your army in kind of blocks is very useful here, because it's not all that often that any given unit is going to operate completely independently. Like you're very rarely going to send you know, a single unit off to fight a single other unit. You're normally supporting it with some portion of the rest of your army. So thinking of your army as a series of uh, machines, each of which are composed of several units, I think is often one of the, the best ways to do things. It's like, okay, you know, here is my squad of eradicators, and I'm backing them up with a melee unit that will prevent them from getting charged. And, and that little section of things is a block from your army that operates on its own. You don't want to run that character out and goes by himself because then he'll just get shot because he's just a character. 
uh, and you don't want to run the eradicators by themselves because your opponent can just sort of tap them with some group of like random guardsmen or whatever and shut them down completely. Mm-hmm. So they they need to operate together to really do their job properly. And by thinking of your army in that way as like composed of these various pieces, you can kind of lower the mental load of how many decisions you need to make. Because you don't need to think, where do the eradicators move? Where does the character move? You just need to think, where does this block move? Because it's always going to move together. It doesn't work if it doesn't stay together. That's that's a really good point. Sky, do you have anything else to add to that? Or any other tips for people who have a lot of zones of influence to manage? Yeah, so try to like simplify the units that you take at first, in the sense that you know, um, like instead of trying to try too many different things, just stick to one or two things that then you can sort of really focus on. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups, it would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. I personally love, uh, you know, like, understand whether your army is really good against shooting or whether it's really good against combat, and then sort of like make a uh, a concerted effort to like understand like how far an enemy army will threaten you <laughs> basically to be like okay so if you move this far it means that you can charge this far and and instead of like okay so i don't care if you can shoot me or not i know you're going to shoot me regardless so i'm going to focus on you charging me right and then you make sort of like you make an effort to like measure out where and how the enemy army will be able to charge you, right? Kind of make <laughs> those decisions, basically. Yeah. Okay. There's there's a lot to this edition that we're all kind of slowly starting to learn. Uh, I'm really glad you guys came on to talk about this episode. Now we're coming in at just over 45 minutes or under an hour speaking of coming in at under an hour sean where can they find your lovely voice 
We're still doing In the Finest Hour. Uh, you can find us on Facebook or Podbean or whatever sort of other podcast service you prefer to use. Uh, and we have a Patreon if you would like to hang out with all the, the hosts of the show, Shaylin and Ben Jurek and myself. You can subscribe to that if you if you want to hang out with us when you don't you don't think you get quite enough of me on Chapter Tactics. Uh, also, they just released an episode. I think it's three episodes late now, um, or three episodes earlier, but uh, about uh, you know um, improving your community in yeah. uh, 40k. And it was a really really good episode. I really enjoyed it. So check that out, especially if you you know you have a hard time with your local community or uh you want to go out and try to slowly dip your toe back into rtts and stuff Mm -hmm. it was a it was a really good episode to to do because i think that is a almost criminally uh under discussed part of 40k is like your community because Mm -hmm. that's what the game is kind of about yeah, and, and sometimes the difference between a toxic local community and, a, you know, a more inclusive, wholesome one mm-hmm. uh, is really a night and day difference. Uh, I know entire, you know, entire clubs of people who've just flat out stopped going to tournaments because of, you know, one or two toxic members or, or a bad game store owner or whatever. Yeah. Uh, all right. And Scary, when you're not coaching on the Art of War, what else are you doing? You can find me on uh, Patreon. Scardcast at Patreon, and I do most of my stuff on there. So if you'd like to come on down to hang out and be a part of the Denizen community on Patreon, you know, please do. We hang out, we do stuff, and we play games and a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, I'm excited, and I love all of you. So come on down to Scary Town. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. I like that. <laughs> I'm gonna say that now every time. That's going to be your intro on Chapter Tactics from now on. Next week, look out for uh, uh, Come On Down to Scary Town, the, host, the co-host of Chapter Tactics. Uh, I love it. You know what? I'll keep it. <laughs> All right. And then finally, uh, we do have a Patreon. Um, it's in the link. You can find it. Super easy. However, one benefit to our Patreon you can have is you can ask us live questions that we answer at the end of every episode, which is what we're going to do right now. We have a lot of good ones, which is why the episode... Uh, is cut a little short. Um, we might spend a, a long time on these. Fair warning, hopefully not, but there are a lot of good questions here. First question goes to Mr. Nick Wenker. Uh, what are the most fun campaign moments you've had in Warhammer Total War 2? Do either of you play Warhammer Total War 2? Not Warhammer, but Rome. Really. And oh. the Rome ones. Oh, um, well, so go first. If you have a fun, do you have a fun Warhammer Total War Rome campaign moment? I just love playing against um, the Gauls and having, like, killing the general, and then they all run away instantly. Mm. And it's like a mega route. You just make the entire Gaul army run away. It's fabulous. Nice. <laughs> got a little bit of... Damn. Got a little bit Damn of... Goals. You know, regionalism at play there, maybe. <laughs> uh, I think my my most fun campaign moment came uh, in a Sigvald the Magnificent legendary campaign. It was my first ever legendary Total War campaign, and I was very proud because I, I wanted it to be a long a long campaign setting. So it was gonna be you know it's gonna take you know three four hundred turns to complete. But I finally did it. Uh, you know I had allied with Clan Moors. 
and together we had taken over pretty much the rest of the world and all that was left was a massive dwarf stronghold which i just kept throwing dragon over shaggots and armies at and they wouldn't budge so i banded all of my strongest units together just rebuilt up and just charged them and they had one settlement left and I was I was gonna have this epic battle with Sigvold, you know, he had the Sword of Cain. He's gonna go in there, he's gonna fight like four dwarf armies at once because the AI is broken. And Clan Moors went in there, right before I went in there. I didn't even know they were in ambush, and they took the final settlement, <laughs> took my epic final battle away from me, and then the game won because of because I achieved the campaign victory. Right. And I was so <laughs> furious that I played another 200 turns wiping out the Skaven. Because that's what Abaddon would have done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was furious. I, and I could, I, I even tried reloading it, mm-hmm. you know, they just from a different time. save point. What's yeah. up? They just did it every time, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, yeah. I just, there was yeah. no way around it. I was yeah. so mad. Oh, no. I remember I tried reeling in it. And that's when I found out in a legendary campaign that you can't reload it. Because I played oh, the entire okay. campaign, and I remembered because I hadn't had to reload in like 200 turns. I was like, "Oh, great!" So they took my victory away from me, and I wiped them all out. It took another 200 turns, but I did it. So that's my. Anyways, nice. Uh, patron Kelsey wants to know what's the most memorable 40k game you've played, and what about it made it so memorable? Scary and Sean. Sean, you go first. Oh boy, uh, <laughs> I did a a big apocalypse game that had like four or five really good moments in it. Uh, the, one of the old the the chaos bombardment stratagem uh, that blew up like I think like a hundred and twenty orcs with one shot. Uh, that was that was not a happy time for that orc player. Uh, swinging the game with a squad of seven guardsmen, beating a Turvagon and then a warboss in mega armor to death in a single turn. <laughs> that was that was also unexpected. Uh, it just it was it was a, a one of those games that just had a bunch of really really cool moments in it. Right on. So one of the playing forty k for uh, like for so long. I'd want to say it's more like epic moments that I remember the most rather than mm-hmm. just games. Fair enough. And one of the most epic moments that that has is an oldie but a goodie. It was all the way back when I was learning how to play the game in 3rd edition. And back in the day we thought terminators were like the be all end all and they would never like you could never kill them. Little did two up save. Oh yeah, it was crazy. We <laughs> thought they were the most OP thing ever, until one day my brother decided to attack me with some crout, and lo and behold, he I rolled five ones for their saves, and they all died from oh, the five man. from the five from the five wounds that they had done. So it was like five had hit, five had wounded. And I rolled five dice, and every single dice was a one. And I looked in abject horror as my entire unit of Terminators had just been wiped out by effing Kroot. And I'll never forget that. All right. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep mine quick. Uh, My most memorable moment is uh, playing against Jeff Robinson for the first time in a Mm. fun narrative 
campaign at the Broadside Bash in San Diego, and um, he was super serious, and I was bright, new to 40k, bright-eyed PD Pop, um, and I killed, uh, I landed four hits on his Termagant Brood uh, with the Thunderfire Cannon and did like 40 wounds or some some ridiculous amount of hits. And he looked at me and he said, is that how it works? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, Jeff, I think that's how it works. And he was like, well, all right. And then we looked at the board because it was some wacky mission where like the goblin objectives ran off the board. And that was the last one. And then I killed it immediately afterwards. And he looked at me and he was like, can I win? And I was like, no, I killed all the objectives and I have the last one. So I don't think so. And he was like, all right. And then we played and we played to a draw. Um, he played a long, hard-fought draw where he finally killed that one goblin I have left. Little The little shit ran away from my squad because it's like a snotling that tries to run away from you. Mm-hmm. It ran away like directly towards his hero fent. <laughs> and his hero fent was just like, oh, yummy, and just killed it. And that was it. So anyways, that was a great, that was a great game. All right. Patron Vaclav wants to know, what is the best strategy to adopt in 9th edition? Play Space, Space Marines. Marines. Yeah, ah, it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not. No cop out there. <laughs> Go ahead. No cop out. Pre-measure. Ooh, pre-measuring. That is OP the strategy best. That is honestly one of the best things you can do. Pre-measure. Pre-measure. And did I mention you should and can measure things before you need to? Fair enough. I do like MSU. I do like MSU in ninth edition. Um, I, I've always liked it in previous editions, but in ninth edition, I feel like it's it really is the edition of MSU. So, um, all right. Uh, patron Matthew wants to know Pablo hopping for some advice on tweaking, hoping for some advice on tweaking army lists. How do you go about trying new units on in out in your army without changing your core elements of your army too much? Uh, that is a really good question. Um, I will take this one first, gentlemen, if you don't mind. Um, so what I do when tweaking lists is I look, I build around two or three core cores in a list, and then I go from there, right? So for instance, my Necron list, I'm building it around the Silent King, who is at 450 points, essentially a core part of the army. And then I'm also building it around three Canoptic Doomstalkers and a Cryptek, which is about 400, almost 500 points as well. Uh, and so those are the core kind of things. I'm never taking out one Doomstalker. I'm always running three. The Cryptek is always an auto-take because of that core. Uh, and then you kind of build a core, and then you, whatever's left points-wise, that's what you have to play with. So that's kind of how I go about tweaking my lists. Yeah, I think that's, like, you have to know what your core is, and that comes down to, like, what is your list strategy? How are you actually going to win the game, and which units are doing that for you? Um, so, like, understanding that part of your list is going to be critical to like establishing what is the center of your list and what are the the extra sort of like frills that you've you've put on there to make it work better. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I think what you need to do is build a list. On average, I recommend that you play about 20 to 30 games if possible with a specific list and that one of the things that you should do while playing with this list is don't change it drastically tweak it tweak it tweak it tweak it tweak it tweak it don't just like don't just 
give up on it right away if you if you think that there should be something a little different or whatever. And you'd be surprised how much of an impact that has on how you make the list. Don't yeah. the, uh, yeah. the worst thing you can do is literally play a game, lose, and then go, ah, the whole list is trash, and then start from scratch. Like it's honestly you need to play a list like many, many times before you can like make a judgment call of that sort. Yeah, yeah. I see a lot of people like play one or two or three games with a list and then just abandon it completely. That's usually the wrong call. Occasionally you'll like realize that a list just absolutely does not do what you thought it was going to. Uh, and that it is a a real failure, but if you have tested a list at all before, then you probably know going in roughly what it does, uh, and just sort of like abandoning it and, and like, okay, well, I'm going to take out a 1,200 points of units and put in 1,200 points of new units and try something totally different. Like, that's that's almost always the wrong call. Right on. All right, uh, next question, Patron Kelsey. This is a double-dipping and he wanted me to talk endlessly about magic. So he asked me three Magic the Gathering questions. I'm only going to answer one, and I'm going to relate it to Warmer 40k. So his question is, with Rick showing up, Rick from The Walking Dead showing up in Legacy decks, how do you feel about the future of Eternal Formats with more secret layers on the way? So that for Translate, for those of you who don't play Magic the Gathering, essentially, Wizards of the Coast released these new prom- promo- promotional limited run cards uh, that they cr- uh, create in a um, series called The Secret Lair, which is um, essentially they print these cards with special artwork that you won't get anywhere else except from them. Uh, and they're reprints. They're not ma- brand new magic cards, generally. However, they release new magic cards that are the Walking Dead themed, who whose rules have never been seen before anywhere else. So they don't exist anywhere. And you can only get them by ordering them from secret lair which is a print to order service uh meaning after the week-long period that they're printed they will no longer be available for print mm-hmm. now what that means is they're essentially creating a product that could potentially have rules that competitive players want with a limited availability now i think that's an awful idea and the reason yeah. why is in Warmer 40k, GW already did that, and it went over like a big, stiff, wet fart. That was the Imperial Space Marine. Do you both remember the Imperial Space Marine? Oh boy, do I. Let's, Can I let's use it for free gun. in my army, too? Oh yeah. my god. So so for those of you who don't remember, the Imperial Space Marine was a limited edition GW anniversary model with its own special rules. It was very hard to find. They only limited. It was a really limited print run. Every store only got like one or two. And its rules were you could include it for free in a Space Marine army in replacement of a regular Space Marine model. Meaning mm-hmm. your 11 point scout squad, scout marine, could be replaced with an Imperial Space Marine. You could bring a tactical squad and bring him. Now that in itself, already pretty strong. He he also was good. He had a few wounds. Um, you know, he had a a character stat line. He was free, by the way. And more importantly, he had a gun with the instant death rule. Yeah. Meaning, if you didn't have Eternal Warrior, and he did a wound to you, you were dead. D-E-D dead. How is that that not balanced? Oh, it had two shots. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, of course it did. Yeah. <laughs> in case in case anyone thought that maybe this was the first time that GW fucked up and made Space Marines the best at everything, it is not. Oh no. Th- this was when Battle Company came out. He was a thing for a while. GW expected you to run a battle company with fifteen, you know, fourteen, fifteen free dedicated transports in your space marine list, and then one of those transports had this Riptide killing god that could just pop out and just nuke a Riptide. It would, anyway. So tournaments banned it across the board. We were we were smart enough to realize that. Magic luckily doesn't have the same issue. These cards aren't as powerful as the Imperial Space Marine. However, unless Wizards reprints them later in different formats, in a different format, it, it's going to be an issue. So, anyways, that's that's the answer to that question. Yeah, the answer is it will make them a lot of money, and people will be mad about it, and they don't care. Yes. All right. Uh, Patron Nick wants to know, what do non-Necron players need to learn about this new codex? What are the best and worst design elements with this Necron update? Um, I'm going to take this since, hmm. since I've, I've kind of adopted Necrons as my own. Um, so I think the, the important thing you need to know about the non, the Necron Codex is, uh, you need to know what the Silent King does. He's got a ton of rules. People are going to bring him regardless yeah. if he's good or not. I think you should learn about what the Silent King does. Um, you should also know, uh, how to kill Scarab Swarms. Five up invuln, 36 wound scarab swarms you mm-hmm. need to know how to kill that mm-hmm. if if you're going to deal with necrons that's going to be a huge issue also with obsec um yeah. so you need to be able to chew, chew through that many bodies their reanimation protocols are not as bad as the necron players are crying about it they're still actually very good animation protocols are amazing what are they they're really good well, smoking if you take those 36 like, like for instance if you take those 36 scarab swarms right and you kill 24 wounds of them, so you've killed six bases, they'll get two bases back on average. Yeah, really okay. Well, yeah, but you know what? The fact that they have reanimation protocols, first of to all, to begin with, being that they didn't even have them originally. Secondly, yes, yeah. okay. Reanimation protocols, by the way, we're going on a tangent here, but that's okay, is not as good on multi-wound models. However, mm-hmm. it makes, like, single-wound models ridiculous. Really yeah. Uh, also, those scarab swarms have living metal, so they heal one yep. wound every turn. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, so you have to be able to deal with that. And then finally, um, if if you're if you build your army one dimensionally, so that it does damage in one phase, satan are going to be a huge issue, right? So if you're like an astromal terror army with only shooting, you have no close combat, no psychic ability whatsoever, the, a satan is literally going to walk up to your army. And just heroically intervene into you so you don't have to worry about so it doesn't have to worry about Overwatch. Because you can only do three wounds to it in a turn. And it heals one wound in a turn. In a, so you're going three to three wounds to it in a phase. Well, well, well but it'll but be in a you, turn because you only do damage in one phase. Yeah. That's why that's why you, it's important to be one dimensional. So um just in case, uh Satan are very popular right now. Try to make your armies damage uh multifaceted. Try to include close combat elements if you can. Uh, psychic phase elements if you can and if you play Tau hope, pray that they charge you so you can overwatch them. If you play Tau don't play Tau. Yeah. Um, it gets, yeah. So so th- I think those are probably the three big things is learn what the Silent King does uh, you need to be able to kill five up invuln scarabs um, with, you know, or deal with them at the very least and then finally, uh, you know Try to, to worry about Satan. Uh, for the most part, if you can kill Satan and do damage to him in multiple phases, they're not that big of an issue. But um, they can just auto win the game 
if you don't if you don't have the ability to do multiple damage to them in in a turn if i can just throw on one other small thing um sure. you're not going to win a battle of attrition with a necron army probably not Unless you are impossibly unreasonably tough, like maybe some of the the Nurgle lists can do it, but most armies just can't. Their combination of res protocols and other stuff and obsec is not going to let you win a just like drawn out slugging match. So you yep. can't let you can't just like try and trade piece for piece with them because you're not going to be able to. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Patron Brett wants to know, best kept bits, bases, etc. brands to grab things for conversions. Any good websites or videos for painting inspiration or great how-to guides? Um, I actually learned all my painting from Duncan on GW, mm-hmm. uh, believe it or not. Uh, I just I felt like his guides were always really helpful. Um, for painting for me, I know it's super generic, but um, I know there's a ton, there's like a wealth of information on that. Um, but for best kept bits, spaces, etc., um, to grab things for conversions, I would say that you should unfortunately throw away all your extra sprues. Period, except for very specific kits where there's multiple options. Um, like for instance, Tau Crisis suit kits and the Tau Commander suit kit. Keep that. That's gold. You're gonna need all those weapon options. Stern Guard veteran kit for Space Marines. Keep that. That's that's gold. Um, however, a lot of people will keep bits for like random heads on your bases and stuff. Uh, you know, just when you want to convert, like if you want to convert Gaunt Termagant heads on your Space Marines army, which I know a lot of people do, you want to keep your bits for that. Just honestly just throw those bits away or, or get rid of them mm. um and then just buy them later when you need them i don't know i'm I'm gonna have to put a, a hard disagree there because i've been Fair collecting enough. bits for 10 years and i uh, every time i try and do a conversion i can just like dig in there and i'll just i'll find something that off a kit i bought six years ago that's like Fair oh enough. yeah i have this that's really useful that's that's fair. I've seen some people do some crazy things with with uh, hi- excessive history of bits. So yeah, I just hate digging through bits and getting stabbed over and over by plastic sprues. I have all mine organized. Um, I have all mine organized in little like you know what some of those sort of like things that you keep you know nuts and bolts and yep. like nails and uh, stuff like from the dollar to... store, and then just yeah. get yourself a bunch of those little sorting containers. And the mm-hmm. best thing you could ever do if you want to do some conversions is I honestly, after I build a kit, I'll have a kit that I'm building and I will instantly make sure that I um I'll instantly make sure that I have uh, all the all the pieces like cut off the sprue. Yeah, I cut everything off the sprues, uh and you know, use what I do and everything else goes into the bits box. Fair enough. Alright. <laughs> Uh, Patron Dan wants to know how dependent are you on Battlescribe for list building? I've been waiting patiently for the Marine update. Um, blah blah blah. Uh, and Tuscari, what's the over under on the Tantalus remaining overpriced with the <laughs> new Forge World Compendium dropping? Uh, and will the Reaper go Cabal only? So, um, I I I'd say don't be dependent on anything. Battlescribe GW list builder app or whatever. Just always be flexible with how you can make your list. Um, but uh, Scari specifically. What's the over-under on the Tantalus? Mm, the over-under on the Tantalus, eh? Well, to be honest, I'm really looking forward to the e-grant anticipation. 
And I think one of the first things I'm going to do when I get a chance to dive into that book is look at the keywords. <laughs> and then I'm going to yeah. look at the point value. And then I'm going to look at the weapons and see if the weapons changed. And then I'm going to look at see if it has any like abilities or anything like that. I hope, I hope that I can play the Tantalus. However, the Tantalus itself isn't necessarily unplayable because of the fact that it is too many points. It's unplayable a lot of the time because of the fact that uh, Space Marines have a unit called Eradicators. And yeah. Eradicator make uh, <laughs> makes that tank go bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing is not tough enough to live yeah. in a world with eradicators. Uh, exactly. Uh, eradicators just make that. Well, Don't feel bad, Scar. Eradicators make everything go bye-bye. They, you know what? They do. And it makes me so sad inside. So, um, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, though, I've had, like, the fact that we have an invulnerable save goes a long way. I'm just saying, honestly, it really does go a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm going to say most of the units in that Forge World back book are going to be mediocre to bad. There's going to be like two things they missed. One of them is going to be Space Marines and one of them is going to be from a weird faction that no one expects and it's going to make that faction into something that is absolutely dominant until an FAQ comes out and fixes it. Absolutely. All right, patron John wants to know when are we playing Among Us? Uh, for for the patrons, I recently put out a an APB for people playing Among Us. Um, if you're unfamiliar, it's a video game where you vote people out. It's like um, werewolves, it's video, or it's a video game about lying to people. Be yeah, honest, it's a really good game. Honestly, you know, it have is. you ever played a game called Mafia? Yeah, Mafia. That's what it is. It's yeah, literally it's it's the game Mafia. But instead of cards to like determine well, who you are, it's a computer game. Like honestly, yeah, it's literally there mafia. Are, but in the computer there are version. dozens of iterations on that formula. Oh, They're yeah. all called a different thing, and they all play exactly the same way. Oh yeah, when we play, so we're going to be playing on Patreon, or not? We're gonna be. I'm gonna be playing with the patrons this Wednesday. So what's gonna happen is uh, I'd like to do every Wednesday a patron stream starting this week on Wednesday at six thirty p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Essentially, uh, I'm going to get some frontline gaming guys together. I've gotten everyone but Reese to download the game. Uh, <laughs> and Reese, you know, he probably, he's not a very good liar to begin with, you know, so he probably wouldn't be very good at it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to try and play every Wednesday. So starting this Wednesday, we'll probably hop on the Patreon and Discord, you know, get in there, try and get a, a team together. So that's when we sh theoretically will be playing Among Us. Now, if no one shows interest, we'll definitely stop. Uh, or I might stream in a different game, but um, Wednesday nights is looking like gonna be, it's going to be stream nights. Yeah. Uh, Jason asked us questions about the Imperial Armor previews, which we did actually already answer. Uh, and then finally, Patron Matt, what is your favorite epic feat one of your characters has pulled off in a single game of 40k? I'm going to let you two go first before I give my story. Feet of a game of forty k, like like most impressive. Uh, one of your, one of your characters has pulled off in a game of forty k. So specifically, one of your character models. Mm, well, I'll go right ahead. I know exactly what I'm going to say here. The back in the day when I played Black Templars, uh, my favorite was every time I faced my Empress Champion against a Warboss with a Power Claw, because a Warboss with a Power Claw had 
like the instant death rule, right? Basically, because it was double your toughness. So your Emperor's Champion would die. But the Emperor's Champion had this ability to hold his his sword double-handed and hit you like a power fist to then instant kill the, the, the war boss. And I loved it. Every time he'd go in, he'd like to make a four pinball save and then stab this war boss right in the face. And <laughs> this war boss would go down and it would always make me smile. Alright. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm honestly... I don't know. I, I'm not, like, jumping any characters. All my best moments have been with non-character models. It's been Do just random idiots. Oh, easily my best one there is Lucius the Drone Turtle. My... I, I, was, I was playing back in, like, 6th edition, and, uh... You know, Lucius the Eternal has the whole thing where, like, if you kill him, then you you become him. And uh, my opponent charged Lucius the Eternal into a squad of uh, some Tau battle suits and their drones, and he killed everything but like one of the drones. And that one drone bonked him to death. And uh, we we decided that was a, a good enough moment that uh, my opponent gave me a a head from his Chaos army. And we mounted it onto the drone and painted it a different color and gave it a power sword. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, I also... Sergeants, you know what? You can use the lookout star on sergeants. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to count a sergeant. So I, um, in 6th edition, there was a rule called morale. When you failed morale, you could run down your opponent in close combat. So one time, there was a space marine sergeant who charged into a drone attached to a Riptide, two Pathfinder squads, and a Tau Commander drone, or with a Tau Commander attached to it. This whole thing in a ruin. Charged him and another buddy. His buddy died, which was totally understandable um, in close combat. He took a bunch of attacks, but the Assault Squad Sergeant killed two Fire Warriors, which meant he won the combat by one. Mm-hmm. All of them failed the leadership. And if you remember, when you failed leadership, you instantly died, and your opponent would run you down. And so this one assault squad sergeant ran down essentially half of my opponent's army worth of points in one combat. It was amazing. I remember that happening all the time if your opponent was Tau. Yep. Yeah, it was yep. unfortunately it did happen to Tau a lot. That's why you just all didn't you need is one suits. space marine to get there, and then the entire Tau <laughs> army the combat. would like run away. <laughs> um, however, that is not the most epic feat I've seen a single model accomplish. Uh, yeah. The most epic epic feat belongs to a Maliceptor yes. in Decepticon <laughs> 2017. <laughs> Uh, this is infamous. Okay, please tell the story again. Please. (laughs) I tell the story at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. Essentially, I had an Imperial Soup army with three shield captains on Donegal jet bikes, Gilliman, and St. Celestine. Uh, And then I just had a bunch of random Imperium Soup stuff assorted on top of that. This is the beginning of 8th edition. So, the first Adepticon of 8th edition. I played against a Tyranid player... You didn't have a terrible Tyranid army. Uh, it wasn't It wasn't six Hive Tyrants, which is what the rage was at that Adepticon. Um, you know, it had one Hive Tyrant, very well painted, and he had a Maliceptor. I didn't know what a Maliceptor did. No one did. No one did. It, apparently, it does one mortal wound to you in a, like an, a 12-inch aura. 
um, on like a four plus or something, or maybe it's an automatic motor. It doesn't matter. Did I didn't know what a Maliceptor did, and he referred to his Maliceptor as Old Mally, and she was one of his prized models. He talked to her, talked her up. Uh, we played a game, the game where you go nine inches from the center of the board. So it's uh, table quarters, no man's, small no man's land. I lined up all three of my Donegal jet bikes and Celestine right on the front to match up with his one Carnifex. Because I knew if I bum rushed him with all those and Gilliman and then ran up the board with Cyclopses, I would win. It was, it was a shoe in I was so confident. He gets first turn. He double moves his Maliceptor past his Carnifexes within three inches of all of my characters on the front line and does one mortal wound to each of them. This is important. Don Eagle shield captains have seven wounds. His mortal wound that he did to each of my shield captains brought them down to six wounds apiece. And Celestine? She also had and seven Celestine. at the time. She, 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 yeah, she got dumped down, but Celestine, Celestine was basically relevant in this particular combat. So he does a mortal wound to each of these. Now, he informs me that he can't charge me. And I was like, oh, so he basically gave me this Maliceptor for free. So when he passed his turn, he did basically nothing else. I heroically intervened all three of my shield captains and Celestine into this Maliceptor. Yep. I didn't kill it. He I, I attacked it once, didn't do any damage to it, and then he interrupted for 2 CP. And then proceeded to inform me that the Maliceptor has three attacks. And each of these attacks does D6 damage. And I was like, oh, I I didn't know that. You know, he's a big Tyranid Gribbly. I guess I should have expected it. And he proceeded to allocate one attack to each of my six wound shield captains. Now I laughed because these shield captains have a three up invuln two of them have a three up invuln all of them have veterans of the blood games so i can re-roll failed saves for each of them each of them and i think he allocated two to one the one with the four up invuln so i was not worried at all he proceeded to hit with all of them wound with all of them all three of my shield captains failed their invuln failed the re-roll and then on my last one where he doubled up on I failed that one as well, too, with my CP reroll. So all of my shield captains are looking down the barrel of a Maliceptor's gun, which is his fist. And then he rolls the damage roll for all of them, rolls a six, a six, a six, and a five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Proceeds to kill every single shield captain, rolled a six damage, dead, six damage, dead, six damage, dead. Killed all of my shield captains on his turn. And then I lost the game. And that's, that was it. And a- he said, calmly, Old Mally's having a great day! <laughs> <laughs> you know, this reminds... The way this, this story has affected me is when you decided to brand yourself as the competitive 40k podcast. And I thought it was hilarious yeah. when I heard that your tournament experience was you playing a game Losing all your shield captains to this Maliceptor, and then spending the rest of the tournament watching the games. I literally left. That was the last time those shield captains were ever used. I am not yeah. joking. Yeah. I had them painted a beautiful silver color. They were converted with shields. Gorgeous models. Mm-hmm. 
I I literally after that game, I was like, okay, I, you know what? This this isn't my tournament. I'm gonna concede. I'm gonna, it's Adepticon. I've never been to Adepticon. I'm gonna go enjoy the convention. So I played some X Wing. I played uh the one of the largest um underworld Shadespire Underworlds games with the person who designed the game. So I I got my full enjoyment out of Adepticon. So secretly, I should really be thinking that Maliceptor because if I had won that game, I'd still be playing in Adepticon. You know, right now, forever, even, yep, eternally, even today, stuck in purgatory. <laughs> so, so I'd like to say that the Maliceptor released me, uh, and I was able <laughs> to enjoy Adepticon. Oh. But yeah, I've never, I've literally never used Shield Captains since then. Uh, anyways, such a good story. Such a great oh, story. Oh, so. That is it. That is the end of the episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You are all the best listeners in the world. Don't forget to head on to our head on over to our respective Patreons. If you liked any of the things we talked about, also go into that comment section, go into YouTube, Facebook, frontlinegaming.org, ask us questions and comments. I read every single one of those comments. I try to respond to to the ones that that are respondable to a bull. Uh, um and as always, you're all the best listeners in the world and have a good one.